hurricanes or tropical cyclones, to give them their full meteorological title, are among, if not the, most powerful and destructive weather phenomena that exist in the natural world. When viewed from space, hurricanes can also give us some of the most iconic and awe-inspiring imagery in meteorology, with their rotating pinwheel-like formation. But how do these devastatingly beautiful storms with their symmetric structures form, and what is it really like to forecast and fly through one? Hello and welcome to the Met Aaron podcast. I'm Liz Walsh. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick and today we're joined by Senior Hurricane Specialist John Cangelosi of the National Hurricane Centre in Florida. John is going to help us answer these questions and navigate us through the life cycle of a hurricane. So firstly, thank you very much for joining us, John. It's uh, it's very exciting. We've been really looking forward to, to doing this podcast. Oh, you're welcome. I'm, I'm, it's an honor to be with you guys. <laughs> John, um, just to, like just to get the ball rolling, where did you uh, where did your interest start out in meteorology and how did you end up working in the National Hurricane Center? Sure. So I think like a lot of people who have become meteorologists, uh, my interest was very young. I was a child. Uh, probably about nine or 10. It's hard to place a specific event, a weather event, but I grew up in New York City. So it really wasn't about hurricanes immediately for me. It was more about blizzards and, and winter weather. Uh, I was just, I remember loving the snow and and I particularly wanted to get off from school. Um, and so I thought, well, nice. a blizzard can help make, help make that happen. So um, I just became fascinated by it. And just as I started to age, I just got more and more excited and interested and just kept following my passion. And it wasn't until I got to college and I had transferred into college at the University of Miami in South Florida. And of course here, I'm still in Miami, the world is all about hurricanes and tropical meteorology. So from being in college and then having the opportunity in graduate school to fly with the hurricane hunters, that was it. I was like, that's it. I'm doing hurricanes. And the only place to go from there, I felt was the National Hurricane Center. So that's kind of what led me here. Okay, looking forward to, to digging into that a bit more. The, you mentioned the National Hurricane Center. What, what exactly does the National Hurricane Center do? Sure. So the National Hurricane Center, of course, which is part of uh, the U.S. National Weather Service, which is part of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, our job specifically is we're considered the experts internally uh, for hurricanes for the U.S. National Weather Service, and we're also considered the experts uh, through the World Meteorological Organization for this side of the world for hurricanes. So we have a pretty big responsibility where we monitor the tropics daily uh, in the Atlantic and East Pacific basins, but especially during hurricane season. And we forecast all tropical cyclones, so tropical depressions, tropical storms and hurricanes in both the Atlantic and East Pacific basins. So we're far from US centric. If there's any uh, storms that may threaten the United States, we will directly put up watches and warnings for the United States related to the hazard. Internationally, we don't put up the warnings, but we do collaborate and coordinate with the affected countries to help guide them to, to put up the appropriate warnings. So I think it's amazing because the cool thing about our job is, you know, we're not just, even though we're here in the U.S. and part of hired by the U.S. national government, uh, we are really sort of international meteorologists. So it's, it's a very cool, very cool and unique position. Hurricanes are, are actually tropical cyclones, aren't they? So they have different names in other parts of the world. Um, yeah, they do, Liz. Yeah. So like you're right, all over the world, they're called different things. You know, um, 
in reality, it's all the same animal. For example, um, we all call them the scientific term that we refer to these weather systems are or tropical cyclones. Um, but where you know, close to where we live, where both of we where we are, we call them hurricanes when they get in their mature state. Uh, however, like in the Northwest Pacific, they call them typhoons, and down near Australia, they call them cyclones. They're just regional names for yeah. really the same weather system. They're all just tropical cyclones. And um, the Hurricane Center, and and in fact, um, like, well, all of the uh, regional specialized uh, meteorological centers around the world um, in Tokyo and New Delhi and Darwin and all those places, they they, um, give these storms names. And who decides those names? Is it it the National Hurricane Center or the, the World Meteorological Organization? So it is through the World Meteorological okay. Organization. And, and how it really works is that there's a meeting uh, conducted annually where all of the um, all of the the sort of re- the centers, the forecasting centers from the, around the world all meet together and coordinate on this kind of uh, this is one agenda item that they coordinate on. So, John, in, in today's podcast, we're we're trying to paint a picture, I guess, of of your typical life cycle of a of a hurricane. And now obviously there are, you know, lots of variation in different types of hurricanes and in the way they they form and and where they go, but for today we're thinking of a hurricane forming in the North Atlantic uh, approaching the east uh, east coast of North America. Um and with that in mind, um where where in the initial stage of its life cycle, where where's a hurricane being born? Yeah, so it's a good question. Oh well, about I could tell you that about 70% of the time uh, they originate from Africa. Um, they actually come from the 70% that is come from tropical waves that originate uh, over the continent of Africa. And th- the reason they start there is because there's a really significant uh, temperature and moisture contrast over the continent uh, from the desert, the Sahara Desert to the much uh, sort of the rainforest along the Gulf of Guinea. And you get weather disturbances that pop up there and then they're driven westward across the Atlantic Ocean. And they're, they're really the seeds that eventually can become these really devastating storms. So the majority of the time, that's where they come from. And they track across the warm ocean waters of the Atlantic and rather and slowly gain steam um, and have the ability to become hurricanes. You talked about the, the tropical wave. Like, can you actually see these things um, on the, you know, coming? Uh, do you see them? Like, how do you how do you find one? We have experts here at the Hurricane Center that part of their job is to, to locate them and find them. And uh, I will first tell you that we track every single one of them. Um, and in fact, yeah. throughout, throughout the hurricane season, we typically track on the order of about 60 of them every year. And there's not a lot of variability in how many we see year to year. Uh, they're pretty regular features. We almost get a new wave that comes off the west coast of Africa every three or four days during the hurricane season. So I know, John, sometimes when you look at some of the warnings and the maps coming from the National Hurricane Center, they'll sometimes have like a region marked, region of interest where there's a certain percentage of something developing. Is that essentially where one of these tropical waves is located? It can be. Actually, I was just doing that this morning because I'm uh, the hurricane forecaster on shift today. And um, so, yeah, what it, it often is a tropical wave. Like I said, about 70% of the time it's coming from those weather disturbances. But it can be from other features, too. Um, so we can see uh, systems even form off of cold fronts that are dying out uh, or even disturbances in the upper atmosphere that are moving over warmer water. Um, they account for the remaining 30%. But 
in general, the, the answer to your question is yes, we are tracking those features. And if we think those features could become a tropical depression or something stronger, then we will put those hatched areas around there and give them a percentage of development. So, John, um, what do they? Uh, what does it look like when you're um, when you're hunting for for the birth of a hurricane? Is it is it just like a, a clump of thunderstorms or any any kind of any kind of features that are are kind of a heads up? Yeah, so they look actually pretty um, pretty benign most times. Uh, like you know, most people when they're like, oh, well, why are you worried about that? It doesn't look like very much right now. And most times, yeah, they they start off very harmless looking. Um, Like you said, Liz, just like a clump of thunderstorms or even just not even thunderstorms, maybe just sort of rotation in the low level clouds. They just start to look suspicious to us. So there's a few things that we kind of look for. So if we start to see particularly systems that are gaining rotation, meaning they're starting to spin, just a low pressure system. And we'll worry about that low pressure system if it has all of the ingredients necessary for it to get stronger. And those ingredients could be the warm water, um, generally around 80 degrees Fahrenheit or 26, 26 and a half Celsius, um, a low amount of vertical wind shear, meaning the storm can grow vertically straight up and down, and also uh, a lot of moisture in its environment. So if that seed that I mentioned is in the right environment, then we become particularly interested and start to assign it some chances of development. So just to go back on one or two things there, John, you mentioned wind shear. So essentially, that's that's how much the wind speed changes as you go up into the atmosphere. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's just it's just um, and I often tell tell kids um, and it, I, it would be work better if you could see me right now. But I would often tell kids that. Um, imagine if I'm a system trying to become a hurricane and imagine at my feet or the bottom of the hurricane, you know, it's pushing me to the left. And then at the top of the hurricane or the the system that wants to become a hurricane, it's pushing me to the right. You know, that is directional wind shear. It's going to shear the system apart or, or it would cause me to fall down. And the kids often laugh, but in reality, that was, that's an example of wind shear. So if the winds are very light and moving all in the same direction, then that would be low shear and give the storm an opportunity to gather some strength. And one of the things like, you know, where you, you talked about warm seawater, like, you know, that that was, a, a you know, one of the main ingredients as well. Um, but I often think that, you know, some people think that like, oh, well, you know, around, you know, northern Europe or western Europe, like, oh, the sea is getting warm. So, you know, we could have a hurricane just starting here. But the, the what you're actually talking about when we're talking about sea surface temperatures, you're actually talking about the water is warm through a layer of the, you know, it's it's not just the very top <laughs> of the of the ocean. It's kind of through a layer that it's 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 warm, like a, it's to that degree. Is that right? John? Yeah, you're right. Liz. So yeah. so the parameter that you're actually describing that we refer to scientifically is called is called ocean heat content. Mm-hmm. So we're we're actually we come up with measurements using satellite data mostly and and buoy observation of not only what the skin temperature is of the ocean, but how how, as you go below the top layer of the ocean, how warm is that water? And we can come up through, a, you know, do a calculation to calculate the heat. And there's a really good studies and a correlation to say that that heat really correlates to how strong the storm could eventually become. It's called maximum potential intensity. And there's been lots of research that correlate the two and they really fit quite well together. So for example, like in you know close to us, we're in South Florida. There is plenty of heat in the ocean yeah. and, and and across the Caribbean. But as you move north, even if you're thinking off the Northeast U.S. or Atlantic Canada or toward Europe, 
Um, even if the waters get a little warmer at the surface, it's pretty rare for them for that warm water to extend quite deep. So there's just not much heat content in that area. Mm. So that layer of warm water, it's almost like a battery supplying energy to your storm. Is that right? Oh, yeah. That's a great analogy, actually. So if... Um, if that, that battery is fully charged in the Caribbean and near South Florida, the Gulf of Mexico and, and other locations. So if the other uh, parameters that we mentioned, like lots of moisture and low wind shear line up as well, you kind of have a problem because now you have your battery fully charged and the system moving into a region that could uh, could form and could get quite strong. You mentioned that when you're looking at these collection of thunderstorms you're interested to see if they if they show some rotation or if they start to rotate themselves is what's what's the significance of that why why do you need these storms to begin rotating yeah so that's sort of how they really derive their energy so as they start to rotate um they're they're basically you know forming a low pressure system and if you've ever seen pictures of any weather system but particularly hurricanes you'll notice that they spin quite fast and that's really how they derive their energy and increase their wind speeds and build lower pressure in toward the center. So when we start to see rotation, uh, we say, okay, well, there's one ingredient that it now has. It's developing a low or center of its circulation. And then if it starts to develop thunderstorms on top of that, then we know that that low can deepen even quicker. So it's just sort of the beginnings work of, uh, or setting up sort of the frame for, for what could be become a very powerful system like a hurricane. So, so yeah, that's sort of the beginnings of it at work. When you've got this, like you've got the conditions are right and you can see the cluster of rotating um, thunderstorms. Can you, like, is the eye, like, you know, people are familiar with the eye of a, of a hurricane. Like, you know, is, is the eye something that's always visible or is it like, you know, do you have to use different kind of satellite uh, different types of satellite to kind of check out what the structure is of the system that you're looking at. Yeah, so the eye is is often not visible. Um, so okay. you know, speaking of that, Liz, you know, like we we try to use all different sorts of tools to track hurricanes, and mostly satellite imagery and, and different types of, of of derived data from satellites. Or, but mostly satellites are our number one tool. And when, when you have a tropical depression or a tropical storm, most of them do not have an eye per se. I mean, they do have a, a center, but it's very hard to even find that center. I, I often say that, you know, one of the most painful parts of, of my job, and I know my colleagues would agree with me, is is trying to locate that center when it's a <laughs> tropical depression or a tropical storm because it it's kind of painful. It, it's 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 not obvious, and um, we need to get it right because if we don't get it right, then we're affecting our prediction for the future and we're affecting the models that then use our initial data points so we're really kind of messing things up when we when we get it wrong but it's it's really hard to figure out it's actually quite easy that part is quite easy once we have an eye because then we have high confidence and we can see it but most times uh storms don't have eyes until they're a hurricane and and sometimes not even until they're a category two hurricane so it, it's it all depends upon the the circumstance but I can guarantee that most tropical, almost all tropical depressions and tropical storms uh, don't have eyes. Where are the strongest winds? I, like, I know that it's, it's kind of quite different to what happens in the mid-latitudes. We've got very strong winds um, higher up in the atmosphere. But um, in hurricanes and in, in tropical, like, tropical storms in general, um, the strongest winds are usually elsewhere. They're not normally at the top of the, um, of the atmosphere. They're kind of lower down. Where are the strongest winds in a hurricane located? 
Yeah, so they are further down. They're kind of in, in what we call the boundary layer, which is the lowest layer. It's above the surface because like right near the ground, there's some friction. So the winds do die off. But once you get above the layer of friction, you know, uh, up a couple of thousand feet, that's where we usually find the strongest winds in a hurricane. And we have really good research from the hurricane hunters to show us that that, that exists. Um, and, you know, in the hurricane environment or in what we call the storm environment, the strongest winds are going to be awfully close to the eye in the region of the eye wall when it has one. Um, it is by far the worst place to be in a hurricane. I mean, I have, I've driven around locations here in Florida, for example, where you've They've experienced the eye wall to regions just outside of the eye wall. And the damage is so different uh, because as you get in close to the center, the velocity or, or the wind speed increases almost exponentially. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's so a few thousand feet up and right in the eye wall is cer certainly the worst where we'll typically find the, the maximum winds. This idea that the eye of a storm is, is a calm place to be, is there, is there truth to that? There is. It's, it's, it seems so strange. I, I'm aware. It's like if you're in the middle of the monster, it's calm. But it's, you know, it's calm in like a very eerie way. I don't know if you guys had the opportunity. There was some video uh, from Hurricane Michael that made landfall uh, in, in the Florida panhandle last October. And someone went outside while they were in the eye of the hurricane and it was a category five hurricane. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And it, it was calm. I mean, it was, it was completely calm in mature hurricanes, but in a very eerie way because you're surrounded by this. It, it actually could get sunny in the eye, uh, at least for a brief period. Um, and I've been in the eye of a hurricane, you know, when I've been in the hurt with the hurricane hunters and it is odd. I mean, you feel very, very tiny, but then this this wall of clouds, very high, very intense, weather coming your way. So um, it is it is sort of the strangest thing. And also, you know, one thing about the eyes, it's very hot in the eye. It's the warmest part of a hurricane because the air in the eye is warming and sinking through the column of that eye. So uh, you'll often find the temperatures go up when you're in the eye. Uh, so it's just a strange thing. And that's why we call hurricanes a heat engine, uh, because they really are just producing heat and the middle of it is the hottest point of all. So you, you mentioned a couple of times there, the hurricane hunters. Now We've got to talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so obviously, you're, you're, so we're at the stage where your hurricane is formed and you want to gain more information, I'm guessing, about, you know, as we've talked about, its structure and its wind speeds. Um, and I guess the best tool for doing this is the hurricane hunter. Can you explain to us what that is? Yeah, so the hurricane hunters, they've been around for decades, um, and it, it is kind of what it sounds like they are. They're actually going out and flying into hurricanes. So there are two different um, units that do it. There's the Air Force units, uh, which is what we use operationally here at the National Hurricane Center. They have 10 planes um, that fly directly into hurricanes. The typical altitude is about 10,000 feet when they fly. Um, the winds are stronger at 10,000 feet than they are at the surface, but that is not the maximum winds. They're flying just above where we typically think the maximum winds are. And they fly a standard mission pattern, which looks like uh, kind of an upside down four, if you will, sort of the number four. And the reason they do that pattern is because we want them to fly through all quadrants of the hurricane to try to find the maximum winds. And also we want them to fly um, more often through the center, the eye and the eye wall. 
And the mission they do is just fantastic. I, I will tell you that they collect data that we would have no idea existed if they didn't they didn't go in there. Um, some of the data they collect, I can kind of share it with you. They 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 measure the wind speeds uh, mm -hmm. and other variables at the altitude they're flying. So, which is typically, as I mentioned, about ten thousand feet. Yeah. Also, um, drop instruments. They kind of look like a tube, and there's a little chute on the plane, and they drop those tubes in. And they fall out of the bottom of the plane and they a parachute opens up and they fall slowly. And as they're falling into the hurricane or through the column of the hurricane, they're measuring temperature, humidity, wind speed, pressure. And then eventually those instruments splash in the ocean and stop recording data. And then they also have a, a newer instrument that's maybe about a decade old um, that it's called the, it's got a very technical name. It's called the stepped frequency microwave radiometer. But what that does is it, it's really just mathematical equations that uh, can actually sort of measure what's happening at the sea state of the ocean, how rough it is. And through that roughness, it uses mathematical equations and it backs out a wind speed. So we can actually see how strong the winds are estimated at the surface. So the hurricane forecasters know how to interpret this data. And then we use it to actually analyze what's happening. Were you scared when you flew through that time? Like uh, I was so petrified. I was. I mean, I um I was involved in a project when I was a graduate student and a researcher. I was a researcher for a couple of years before joining the forecast team here. And um so part of the research project was with the hurricane hunters and I was a forecaster for them for the project and they That's a heavy they, responsibility. <laughs> yeah, and they were like, "Hey, John, why don't you come up with us one time?" and I kept turning it down because I was too <laughs> afraid. And then um when the project was sort of nearing a close, um they were like, "This is your last this is one of your last chances." And I turned it down again. And then I was so upset that I said, "If there's one more hurricane during the project, I'm going. I don't care how scared I am." And I took it. And there was, and I took it. Yeah. And it happened to be a Category 5 hurricane. Of course it did. <laughs> so, um, I Do you remember so the, what was the, what the name of it was? Or? It was Hurricane Rita. In two, it was 2005. Wow. It was Hurricane Rita. And I got um, extremely ill on board. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the flights were very long. Um, the storm at the time was in the Gulf of Mexico. And we departed from Tampa and Florida. So you know, we had more time in the storm because it was just off the coast. So they could spend, you know, and because they have fuel restrictions, of course, but if the storm is close to home or base, guess what? You you don't have to waste the fuel. You just spend more time in the hurricane. Yeah, because the mission length is quite long for those um, for those flights. Like, you know, we, you know, I, I read it was about like maybe eight or nine hours. Is that right? Or Yeah, that's the average. In that case, I think the one I was on was closer to 10 hours because wow. there's just more time. But yeah, sometimes they can stay up for 12 hours. Um, it, it sort of depends upon fuel and, and, and how far they're coming and things like that. I think it was Hurricane Michael, I think, last year uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. And I remember looking at, I think it was one of these flight tracking websites where you can see where all the various aircraft are flying at a given time. And all you could see were hundreds of aircraft making this big detour around, which where obviously the storm was on just this bare patch where no one wanted to fly. And there was one tiny little dot right in the middle. And of course, it was this Noah hurricane hunter. So it, this, this really heroic image of this plane boldly going where no one else wanted to go. There you go. Yes. Um, it, it, you know, the joke they often give the pilots, that is, they say, you know, a lot of them were, were trained to be before they were hurricane 
hunter pilots, they were doing something else, of course. I mean, some of them were, were in, in war. Um, others were just in aviation in some capacity. And they said that it, it, they were always trained to fly away from the weather. And now they have to change all perspective and fly into the weather. And it's very hard for them to adjust. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but they do it. They're very, very brave. And, and they, they can't see much. Uh, as they're doing it, obviously they're depending upon their radars and, and various tools, and just sort of having faith. It's very, very um, uncomfortable, I imagine. Mm. You mentioned that the category uh, of the hurricane that you flew through was Category Five. So, how how are you determining that intensity, and what 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 determines how how strong a hurricane is? So yeah, so um, here uh, the I sort of the best way I could describe it is that decisions being made right here where I'm sitting at the Hurricane Center. Um, where we are analyzing all of the available information to come up with that assessment. When we have the hurricane hunters out there, they're directly measuring what the wind speeds are. So we could easily use that data to come up with that assessment. So it's based completely on what the wind speeds are. So uh, again, if the hurricane hunters are out there, we're taking their measurements and you know adjusting them as we feel fit and you know quality controlling what they're observing, and then use that data to come up with what we think the maximum winds are, and then that will connect to what the category is. But when we don't have the hurricane hunters flying, which is the majority of the time, then we have to rely on other techniques. And probably the most, um, and Liz, you were here with us, probably the most yeah. technique used worldwide is something called the Dvorak technique. The way it works is um, a man in the late 70s through the mid 80s sort of led a project by just looking at images of what a hurricane looks like, you know, from space, from satellites, on these satellite images, um, you can, you know, analyze its pattern, uh, met, take measurements of the cloudiness and the bands or the eye temperature, and we can do all of that using the satellite images and following a pretty long flow chart of this technique, and then it will actually give you a wind speed estimate if you follow the technique correctly. And what's incredible about this technique is it, number one, it works well. Um, we can compare it with what we have when the hurricane hunters are out there measuring it, and it works pretty well. I mean, the error is about 10% using this technique, which is pretty low. And um, the other thing is, is it's just, uh, it's always there. It's always available. We have pictures, satellite pictures every few minutes. So we can rely on this technique, use it every day. And, and most people here are experts in following the technique. And imagine this, guys. I mean... This technique has not been changed really at all since the mid 1980s. Yeah, I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know anything that hasn't been changed since the mid 80s. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's remarkable. It just works that well. Yeah, so. it's, it's just it's direct. Like I, I thought it was amazing that that it's just literally pattern recognition um, that you're looking at, and and then you can infer from the shape of the of the cloud field as to what what you're at, like what category or what the wind speed is it's it's amazing it's absolutely amazing and it gives it gives like the forecast models a run for their money as well like you know the forecast models might be doing something else but you have these two tools to kind of you know i i suppose truth test um what you're seeing you know you mentioned like the storms are classified by their wind speeds but often in practice uh, i think the one thing that people don't actually realize is that the biggest hazard with regard to hurricanes is not wind um it's actually something else um, can what is the biggest ha hazard with hurricanes? Yeah, Liz. I mean, you said it. So uh, the the wind is. You know, one of the things our director here at the Hurricane Center always sort of encourages people to take an exercise in, and I'll share that with you guys. Is he asks everybody to sort of close their eyes and just imagine a hurricane coming through your area, and what 
do you, what's coming to your mind? And almost everybody, and I've seen this done at sort of big conferences, almost everybody says, oh, I can just hear the wind blowing or I can hear the wind damaging things. But nobody thinks of the true biggest problems, which is is all of the water related problems in hurricanes. And, you know, historically, the deadliest, the deadliest problem has been storm surge uh, in hurricanes. Uh, We've done a study, and this is only for the United States, but we've done a study for here and about 50% over the last 50% of the people that have lost their lives in hurricanes in the United States have drowned in the storm surge flooding. Wow. And and that's the water that's coming in off the oceans. Um, and at least in this country, we recognize that as a number one problem. So we evacuate people because only of the storm surge. So it won't matter if it's a tropical storm. If we think the storm surge is going to be a problem, people will be told to evacuate because of that, because it's so deadly. Um, and then the second deadliest hazard is just the rainfall. Uh, it's just the rains are, are, are just terrible. I mean, you know, there's been some recent hurricanes that have highlighted that for the United States anyway. I mean, Hurricane Harvey in 2017 produced up to five feet of rain in portions of Texas. We saw so much damage. In fact, in Harvey, um, the U.S. suffered from $125 million of damage. I'm sorry, $125 billion of damage. Uh, and almost all of that was from the flooding rains. Um, so the way the, the conclusion of that, that uh, research that I mentioned earlier is that, and this is, again, just for the United States, but 90% of how people have lost their lives in hurricanes have drowned um, in a combination of storm surge, rainfall, being out at the beach and getting swept away in rip currents or big waves. So we always tell people you're evacuating because we're worried that your home could go underwater. Um, it, the wind the wind is not the biggest problem. It's always, always, always the water. So just emphasizing that point, if you see a storm and you're fairly certain that there's a risk it's going to make landfall, uh, are you looking out then for certain characteristics like, for example, its potential to flood um, or, as you mentioned, the storm surge, this this uh, rush of water that can come in as a, as a hurricane makes land? We are. In fact, in our, in our products... Um, and I say our products, I mean like a bullet, you know, information like bulletins or, or, or text text documents that we put out to the public. We are highlighting what the hazards we're most concerned about are. And we also, you know, we're very active on social media to try to get the message out. And our director does a lot of social media as well and, and, and traditional media. And we often don't even talk about what the category is. Uh, we often say, yeah. Here's what we're worried about. We are worried about the storm surge threat. We are worried about the rainfall threat. And if it is a high category, then guess what? We're worried about the wind threat too. Yeah. Sure. Doesn't matter time, what category right? it is. Yeah. Right. So lots of times we are trying to sort of get people to pay less attention to the category because we have people making, you know, very challenging decisions about their own lives based upon just the number of a category when, when after all, as we mentioned, that's not truly the deadliest hazard. Uh, and we have people forgetting about why hurricanes are so deadly and problematic is not really just because of the category. They're, they're, they're multifaceted. There's just, they're much bigger problems than just what the winds are doing. Yeah. Of course, storm surge was the, was the thing in, in hurricane Katrina as well in 2005. That's the, um, that's, you know, over a thousand people. Um, yeah, yeah, Liz. So 1,200 people lost their lives in, yeah. in, in the U.S. And that's, 
That's, that number is far too large. That's far too large. I mean, those are the numbers we used to see, you know, in the early 1900s uh, when we didn't have a sophisticated warning system and we didn't know these storms were coming and we couldn't evacuate people on time. I mean, the fact that that's a modern day case and we saw a number like that is just terrible. Um, but we have, you know, since 2005, which is when Katrina was, we have done a lot better. Um, I think people are taking things more seriously. And, um, you know, the city of New York um, suffered a lot of problems during Hurricane Sandy, um, which was, you know, it was a category one hurricane. Um, and there was no deaths and no significant damage from the winds. Uh, but there were 73 deaths in New York City and New Jersey uh, from storm surge flooding. If you think a, a storm is going to make landfall, does the angle that it's going to make landfall make a big difference? It does. And I'll tell you why, because let's just take that case for New York. Um, so most times New York, and I was at the Emergency Management Operations Center after Sandy, and what confused them is most times they get hit by a hurricane, the storm is moving from south to north, and much of the flooding goes on the east side, or the storm surge flooding, that is, goes on the east side, and there's a limited fetch because of the angle of New York, you know, for to get really bad storm surge flooding that way. But in the case of Sandy, it went in from east to west and it went to the south of New York. And there was this, just this large fetch of water that just piled up through Long Island Sound and then filled into the New York bays and into the harbor and up the rivers. And so the, that all was associated with the angle. Um, so that can make a huge difference for storm surge. And just to, just to clarify that, you mentioned the fetch there. What, what, what is the fetch and what's its relevance to, to the storm surge that's being generated? Sure. So you can think of fetch as just like the wind is just blowing over the ocean, right? Now, over the open ocean, there's unlimited fetch, essentially, right? Because there's no land blocking anything. So the waves can build and the water can continue to move. But when you're near land, the angle of which the wind is blowing becomes really important for which way, how, how the water can be projected toward land or away from land. And in the case, the latter case I described with Sandy, the water was coming in directly from the ocean to land, where in other cases, it could only be partially hitting the ocean where some of the wind could be blowing over land. So it, the fetch in that case would be more limited or smaller. So that's all associated with the angle and how much room there, ocean real estate there is essentially near land. So when um, like when Sandy like um, hit land, she kind of... Um, the it basically it's losing its engine source because not only is the the water or the water that it's moving over cooling but also when once it heads inland it's it's lost its water source altogether and then at the same time you get this um it's starting to meet the mid latitude westerlies and the strong winds aloft so in effect what we're seeing is the is the storm kind of like just breaking up and coming apart um from the top and bottom yeah exactly so <laughs> So yeah, like what you were describing was the storm sort of changing phase, you yeah. know, and it, and that's what they do. I mean, you know, that their original sources are over the in in the case of hurricanes, their original sources are over the tropics, uh, where they have that warm center and thunderstorms near the core. But then, as you mentioned, Liz, when they start to move north and change shape, and um, they're no longer warmest in the center, the winds become spread out. There's some cooler and drier air mixing in. And then they become more of a, almost like a wintertime storm. You know, they become had developed cold fronts and warm fronts and they're changing phase. The Hurricane Center will stop issuing advisories when they change phase if they're over the open oceans. So if they're over the oceans and they've changed phase, we will often say in our products, the system has now 
is no longer a hurricane. It has transitioned to something extra tropical, which is uh, which confuses people here in the U.S. They think extra tropical means even more tropical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, it means not tropical. Yeah. And, um, and then we stop advisories uh, and pass the ball to the other experts that are either here in the Weather Service and other meteorological services internationally. But um, the exception to that is, and this is this came through surveys analysis uh, done in the United States, is that if a system's still close to land, uh, and it, particularly that would be the Northeast U.S. or Atlantic Canada, and it yeah. could occasionally be Europe, is we want to continue providing our service even if we think the system's transitioning, because people are used is are sort of making decisions off of our products and information. So we didn't want to cut it off to them as a bad service just because the storm is no longer meets our definition of a tropical cyclone. So it's sort of one way where we continue the service on, but even though we're no longer truly the experts in that area. But yeah, and you're also kind of going through with that problem where like people think, well, the National Hurricane Center has stopped issuing advisories. It's 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 not a threat anymore. And, um, you know, in some ways, certainly that can be true in some cases. But in other cases, it may like just transform into something else and, and actually produce even worse weather elsewhere in the in the mid latitudes. We kind of had Helen last year and I, I talked to you on that call in September and um, like that kind of got absor- absorbed into another mid-latitude system and it was coming towards us, but it kind of just disintegrated. But then so the, the advisories were dropped and this is a kind of a, a case where, you know, the NHC has dropped the advisories. That means oh nobody's worried anymore. But then the next thing we got a mid-latitude storm that just came out of Newfoundland. We just had Storm Alley just deepened. And because there was so much energy left behind, you know, with this tropical air there and, and the cold air coming from the north, um, it, it basically superpowered the jet stream. And we got Storm Alley out of that and we got a red level gust on the, on the west coast of Ireland. When there's like tropical cyclones around, there's it's always a very interesting time, like in forecasting, for sure. Right, and, and then you also have to try your best to communicate the threats. So exactly, it's, yeah, we have pretty challenging jobs, both of us, because it's more than just putting out the forecast; it's making sure people get the information and we communicate it to levels that they can understand. So just to jump in on that, obviously, when as you say. On your side of things, these hurricanes or storms, they change phase and they, they move into the mid-latitudes and uh, they can affect us over in Ireland, obviously. And, and in some cases, what might be like a dying storm in the US, it comes out into the Atlantic and it starts to intensify again. How, how does that happen? You'd imagine coming into the cold Atlantic, it, would, it wouldn't gain power. Yeah, no, that can happen. Um, it typically doesn't happen because of the same processes that of why a hurricane would strengthen or form. But sometimes there's energy that can help it strengthen due to other other what we call dynamics or that that are more winter related or extra tropical related. So you know, the, thinking energy from the jet stream or, or 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 things like that, and it could become a very powerful system. In fact, as it heads toward you. Uh, but it's that same entity that it was once tropical, and without that energy, it may have not really been a big deal as it got your way. So it's sort of like different air masses and different pieces of energy coming together, but that original tropical system was the source or a trigger of why it occurred. 
Yeah. So yeah, just a lot going on and, and interactions between weather systems. Yeah, certainly. Like I mean, that happened with Ophelia. Like um, she like she was coming out of the the tropics, and also Ophelia, a weird one, didn't didn't form near the Cape Verde Islands at all, but kind of was subtropical, became tropical, <laughs> like in the Eastern Atlantic, where they don't usually <laughs> usually form, but sometimes right. they do. And and then she kind of met a a jet streak um, in the North Atlantic, and and hitched a ride up towards Ireland for that. What do you mean by a jet streak? A jet streak, well, um, just a a fast-moving, like, ribbon of air. Um, You know, like, part of the jet stream, Mm -hmm. really. She was in the developmental zone of that jet streak and and came up on that. So Mm -hmm. that's why she hit, like, the the storm came to Ireland and and gave us, like, some pretty strong winds. But it weakened significantly as it went up over the the country. If you have... This time of the year and you're thinking about the season ahead, what uh, what are you looking at to, to get a picture of how active you think the season is going to be? Sure. So um, so the season, we have a team actually that looks at this. I'm not actually on that team, but the team that uh, is in NOAA, the agency I work for, uh, looks at some of the what we call the large scale things, like uh, what the ocean temperatures are currently like and how that compares to what they normally are this time of year. Uh, they look at uh, also uh, the even larger scale than that. Are we in a phase of El Nino or La Nina? Meaning, what are the temperatures like over in the Pacific Ocean? Because we know that affects hurricanes in some way. Uh, they also look at uh, what the pressures are like over Africa, because that'll give us some signal of how strong those tropical waves might be uh, when they come off the coast. And then even more things, uh, different sort of weather patterns, like trying to assess how strong the wind shear might be. And if the pattern looks very amplified and sort of like Liz Liz saying where where we have a lot of troughs and ridges or is the pattern a little bit more flat, um, which could give you less shear. So so we look at all of those things. And then after that, they're going to come up with a prediction. Some of the predictions have said that it's going to be a near normal year. That's where most people are kind of going. I've seen a couple of predictions of an above normal year and one or two predictions of a below normal year in the basin. But we spend so much time here at the Hurricane Center just trying to tell people, how, why does that really matter to you? Because in the end, are you going to prepare any differently? Are you going to think any differently? If we tell you it's a below normal year, are you going to say, well, now I don't have to worry? Or above normal year, now I need to panic? Because in reality, um, no one knows where they're going to go. The only thing we know for sure is that there will be hurricanes out there. They will go somewhere. And it could be toward your house. (laughs) So we need to get ready one way or the other. And living in Miami for many years, um, the classic example was in 1992, quite up 25, 26 years ago, 27 years ago. um, It was extremely quiet hurricane season that year. Uh, We only had seven tropical cyclones and only four hurricanes in the whole basin, which is very, very well below normal. Normally we see about um, 12 tropical cyclones and six hurricanes, and that year or so was much below. But one of those hurricanes was a Category 5 that hit South Florida. So even though it was a historically quiet year, it was terrible. So Hurricane Andrew. Yeah. For everyone here, it was Hurricane Andrew, exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, so we always remind people that it, it only takes one hurricane to make it bad for you. So regardless of what the seasonal prediction is, and regardless of what occurs, you just have to get ready one way or the other. 
you know, is that a portent for things to come? Because um, the current uh, guidance from climate change, you know, and the WMO statements is that we will have less storms, but they'll be more intense. Is that is that the idea there? Or I mean, am I completely? <laughs> no, no, actually, there's so we were at a recent conference that that we were participating in that. And that that has been the statement that is coming out of the tropical research community is that the warmer waters and there's not a perfect consensus. You yeah. know how scientists always disagree, um, but Got the it. general consensus, right? The the general consensus is that the warming waters that we are observing um, will likely lead to stronger storms, and that's just through what we said before. That if you warm up the waters in the column of water, the maximum potential intensity goes up. So that's well understood. Um, what's a little less agreed upon is like the number of storms. But one of the things we do know is that when you sort of you perturb the atmosphere, you warm up the oceans, you're, you're sort of changing the weather patterns. And the idea is there could be an increase in shear um, and that could minimize how many we see. Um, nobody knows for sure, but that is the general hypothesis. Yeah, well, we discussed in our in our podcast, um, an earlier podcast, uh, you know, the global circulation. So we right. we kind of went through that whole idea that it's all interrelated and interlinked, and any any small changes can have a big effect on on the whole on the whole system. Exactly, how it all works. So yeah. exactly. But one thing I will add, and and sort of the most applied for the people, right, is that. Um, the problem we have, at least here in the U.S., is storm surge. And one thing we know with global warming is that the sea level is coming up. The sea level is rising. Yeah. I mean, that is well understood and observed. So even if you, you know, even if you have less storms, the potential impacts could be greater because yeah. of the stronger storms, the higher sea level. And again, the deadliest problem, storm surge. So we're, we're quite concerned. Mm. Um, John, I think that's uh, an excellent place to um, to to stop and, and um, wrap up. Just want to say thank you so much for talking to us today. It's, it's been, been really interesting. Thank yeah. you, John. <laughs> You're welcome, guys. Thanks for having me. For this month's climate summary, we'll go over to Paul Moore now, who has the details on how our weather has been this past July. Here are the highs and lows for July 2019 based on data from Meteorans 25 synoptic weather stations. July was warmer than average everywhere. The weather was mixed, alternating between slow-moving areas of high pressure and low pressure giving some nice summery weather at times and some days with rain or showers. During the fourth week of the month, a hot plume of air originating over North African Spain moved northwards over most of Western Europe, giving record high temperatures in several countries. Ireland lay between this hot continental air and a low pressure system off the west coast, which kept our weather mixed with warm, jazzy nights. The sunniest place for the month was in the southeast again, where Johnstown Castle, County Wexford recorded 198 hours of sunshine, 18% above average, while the station that recorded the least sunshine for the month was Knock Airport again, with just 106 hours, 20% below average. The wettest place in July was Claremores County Mayo, with 120.2 millimetres of rainfall, which is 62% above average. Claire Morris also had the wettest day of the month on the 19th with 49.5 millimetres of rainfall, which fell during some strong thunderstorm activity. The driest place was Roaches Point, County Cork, with 32.5 millimetres, 48% below average. The highest monthly mean temperature for July was at both Dublin, Phoenix Park and Oak Park, County Carlow, with 16.8 degrees Celsius, which is 1.2 and 1.1 degrees Celsius respectively above their average. 
whilst the lowest mean temperature was 15.0 degrees Celsius at Knock Airport, 1 degree Celsius above its average. The maximum temperature recorded was at Dublin Phoenix Park on the 22nd with 26.6 degrees Celsius. Mallon Head got to 25.7 degrees Celsius on the 23rd, its highest July temperature since 2006. The lowest temperature for the month was reported at Mark Cree, County Sligo on the 3rd with 3.6 degrees Celsius. Summer thunderstorms were a feature again this month, especially on the 19th and the 30th, with flash flooding in parts of the east on the 30th. Thank you, Paul. And Paul will be back next month with a climate report for what has hopefully been a beautiful August. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Our thanks again to John Cangelosi for joining us this month, Alan Bennett at Headstuff, and Gavin Gallagher, Joanne Walker, and the communications team at MetAaron. Thanks to you for tuning in. And as always, you can find more information about today's topic on our webpage at met.ie forward slash podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the webpage or wherever you normally get your podcasts from and get in touch with us using the MetAaron Twitter and Facebook pages using the hashtag MetAaronPodcast or by emailing us at podcast at met.ie. We'd love to hear any questions you might have. We hope you'll join us again next month, but for now, we'll leave you with the MetAaron Trad Band playing an original composition by our very own Donald Black. And this is Log Wafer or Windy Day. Thanks for listening. And take care.